This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, in any case, for those um, who were here the first two times or heard it, I'm going to repeat a little bit, but we're going to continue. So most of what we're going to talk about tonight is based on this book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. And the very first mistake that very smart couples make is, is absolutely something that astonishes me, and that is not working on the relationship. I cannot tell you how many times I deal with couples who have nothing clinically wrong with them, nothing emotionally wrong with them, no reason under the sun why they shouldn't be best friends and lovers, and yet they're quarreling, fighting bitterly. And most of the time, what I found is they just stopped working on the relationship. And this is what I consider the largest, biggest, really dumb mistake that very smart couples make. Not enjoying each other's company, not bonding, not connecting, not spending time working on the bond of love. And folks, I have to tell you, if you're going to do everything right but not really work on the relationship, then forget about it. Because it requires a bond of love. You have to understand, men and women are different. Life throws many stresses. There's going to be a myriad of issues that are going to come up. And if you're not going to work on the bond, the connection, if you're not going to really spend time together as a couple, then guess what? You're going to be very distant, very apart. Gentlemen, for those who have ADHD, Robbie, you got to get out of the way because people are trying to... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, thank you. Can we continue? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, by the way, I have a term that I think I, I, I've, I've thought about long and hard, and I believe it's true. You know, anorexia is a very severe disease. It's hard to understand. When a young person starves himself to death, it's, it's very, it's very, um, it's quizzical. It's, it's difficult to understand. I have found this on a regular basis, and I believe there's a new term that should be named. It's called relationship anorexia, where for some reason husbands and wives don't want to spend time together, and don't want to bond, don't want to connect. And again, ladies and gentlemen, you could do everything right in your marriage. You could be a mensch, you could be the perfect person. If you're not going to bond, you're not going to connect, you're not going to spend time together, it's going to be very difficult. Okay, but let's proceed. Let's go on to tonight's session. Sameach to Samach Reyemahuvin. One of the brochas that we give the Hassan and Kala is be happy, be joyful, Reyem Ahuvim. Rashi defines what does it mean, Reyem Ahuvim? Best friends who love each other. And with those words, I believe Rashi defines the proper conduct in a marriage. Best friends who love each other. It's enough... <coughs> If you understand that and you keep that in mind, that will direct you in much of what you do in life. Best friends who love each other. Now that may sound obvious and it may sound simple, but I'd like to share with you it's not simple at all. Let me give you an example. A young fellow comes home at 6.30 at night and he's exhausted from a hard day's work. He plops himself down on the couch and he opens the newspaper and he starts reading. His wife is in the kitchen preparing supper, and she's starting to lose it. Because one kid pulls down a book, another kid throws a toy, another kid's ripping the sofa, and she is turning red, beet red. He's going to sit there. He's just going to sit there while the kids wreck the apartment. She has it. Finally, she stands up, points a finger at him, and says, All right, mister, up up that couch. You're either cooking dinner or taking care of the kids. You are not sitting there any longer. So he dutifully follows and does what he's supposed to do. Now, most women would say that she was correct. Many women would say she's a hero. Most guys would also say, that, come on, if your wife is cooking, the kids are ripping the place apart, get up and help, right? And while that's 100% correct, 
I'd like to share with you, she made one of the ten really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. You see, let's play out the scenario a little bit and let's watch what happens. Okay, he gets up and dutifully obeys. He does what he's supposed to do, helps around the house or helps with the dinner, whatever it may be. And then they get the kids ready. They give them baths. They put them to sleep. And it's about 9 o'clock and she's ready to sit down for some quiet time, bonding time with her husband. So she sits down on the couch next to him. And for some strange reason, he kind of moves away. So she moves a little closer. And he moves a little further. And she moves a little closer. And he moves a little further. And for the life of her, she can't figure it out. What she can't figure out is that for the past two and a half hours, like a tape recorder in his mind, has been playing that line. All right, mister, up off the couch. All right, mister, up off the couch. Either doing dinner or helping the kids. All right, mister, up off the couch. For two and a half hours, that line has been playing and playing in his brain until he reaches a conclusion, I married a drill sergeant. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough to be in love. You have to remain best friends. And best friends means you have to negotiate, you have to work things out, and there are going to be many compromises, and there are four rules of friendship. The first rule of friendship is very simple. Who's the boss in your marriage? Ladies, who's the boss? Who wields the power? Who's in charge? I, right? Good. Okay. In a happy marriage, the answer is no one is boss. No one is mentor. No one's in charge. No one has veto power. No one has carte blanche. You are best friends. What that means is you negotiate. You work things out. You consider it. And the very first rule of friendship is no one is boss. Friends don't boss each other around. Friends don't point fingers. Friends don't demand. Friends don't command. Friends act like friends. And while that may sound simple, I'd like to share with you it's not so simple at all because in the thick, heavy traffic of life, many, many very smart couples forget that. And that is the eighth really dumb mistake that very smart couples make, not remaining friends, not remembering that you're friends in the marriage. Okay. Let's move on to one more. Okay. Um, when my son was bar mitzvah, I took him to visit my Rebbe, the Rosh And um, you have to imagine that to my son, this is my Rebbe, and he was going to be a already at that point, and my son was a little bit apprehensive. And when I brought him in to see the Rashiva, as we walked into the office, this was the reaction. The Rashiva is now 65, he's a sage in the Jewish nation, and he looks up and he says, <laughs> How do you paint the radiator? <laughs> How do you paint the radiator? Now, my son didn't know what to make of it, but I immediately knew what the Rashiva Zatzal was speaking about. Many years earlier, when my wife and I were newly married, we went to visit the Rashiva. And at a certain point, the Rebbeson asked me to help with something in the kitchen. And when I went out to, to help, the Rashiva was speaking to my wife. And she, the Rashiva asked, how are things going? What's doing? And my wife told him a certain interesting story, that I had decided to save money, and I decided to paint the apartment ourselves. We moved into a new apartment, and I decided to paint the apartment myself. Now, I knew I had a friend of mine who was very handy. So even though I had no clue how to paint, I relied on my friend. And, um, and we bought the paint, the supplies, and we get there. And uh, at a certain point, we get to the radiator. Now, this is one of the, those radiators from 80 years ago with layers and layers of paint on it. Now, I relied on the fact that he knew how to paint, 
and he relied on the fact that I knew how to paint. And we go, both get to the radiator, and I say, how do you paint the radiator? He says, I don't know how you paint the radiator. How do you paint the radiator? And I guess my wife told us over to the shiva with the image of two yeshiva bachrim with paint dripping down their, their body, etc., and trying to figure out how to paint a radiator, the shiva started laughing. When I walked into the room, the shiva was laughing. How do you paint the radiator? How do you paint the radiator? Okay. Two weeks later, I went to ask the Rashiva something. Now, again, I'm a young married fellow. As I walk in the room, <laughs> how do you paint the radiator? How do you paint the radiator? That became a constant part. I cannot tell you how many times the Rashiva said that up until the point when I had left the Yeshiva already. I was a Rebbe on my own. I brought my son. The first thing the Rashiva said to me was, how do you paint the radiator? But you know why he did it? Because he was teaching us something very fundamental. You have to have a sense of humor. You have to enjoy life. And the only way you're going to keep things light is if you have a sense of humor. And this is the second rule of friendship. You have to enjoy each other's company. And you have to have fun. And you have to really have a very light attitude. And by the way, folks, the best thing to make fun of is yourself. If your wife doesn't appreciate you're making fun of her, don't do it. If your husband doesn't appreciate you're making fun of him, don't do it. But no one gets insulted if the subject of the humor is I. And if you make fun of yourself, no one gets insulted, no one gets bothered. But throughout life, you have to have a sense of humor. You have to keep things light. That's the second rule of friendship. Let's move on to the third rule of friendship. If your spouse is attacked by another person, what is your job? Your job is to defend your spouse, right? What if that other person is your brother? What if that other person is your sister? What if that person is your aunt, your uncle, your mother, your cousin, your father? Your job is to defend your spouse because your spouse comes first. And when you get married, you leave your house of origin. You leave your birth house. You're creating your new home. And you are one entity. It is your job to defend your spouse against the world. That means if your mother, your father, your uncle, your brother says your spouse is wrong, your spouse is right and they're wrong. And don't ruin it. Don't blow it. I cannot tell you how many times people say, you know, <clears throat> Rachel, I defended you from your parents, but I just want you to know they're really right. <laughs> you blew it. Your job is to be deaf, dumb, and blind to your spouse's flaws. Your job as a friend is to support your friend. Your job is to be there, and your job is to support, and again, especially if the other person is a sibling or a family member. And again, folks, many, many times parents, as much as we owe them incredible amounts of appreciation, create a lot of trouble in marriage. And a lot of times the mother or the father decides they should intervene. If that happens, it is your obligation as a spouse to defend your spouse. Your obligation as a spouse is to ask your parents, please, to stop it. And if they don't, you have to leave. Because your primary obligation, your singular primary obligation is your spouse before any other relationship. And by the way, folks, even before your kids... I cannot tell you how many times mothers or fathers say to me, well, how could I allow that when my kids are going to get ruined by it? I have to... Def your first obligation is to your spouse. By the way, 
The best investment you can make in your children's being wholesome, happy people is a good marriage. And the most destructive thing you can do to your children's healthy upbringing is to have a rocky marriage. And when your children know that it's you against your husband, you against your spouse, what happens is invariably the very foundation of their existence becomes very, very rocky. You see, children can handle a lot of inconsistency. But the minute there's quarreling in the house, the minute there's unrest, the basic issues that gravity stops being the same. Because when your kids are little, you guys are 10 feet tall. And when the center of their world starts coming unglued, then all bets are off. Your obligation is to your spouse first before anyone, and that is your first and primary obligation. And I have one more rule of friendship that I think is very important. Friends are forgiving. Ladies and gentlemen, has anyone in this room ever done anything wrong? One honest person. Good. Has anything, anyone in this room ever done anything dumb? Two, three honest people. Has anyone in the room ever done something hurtful to another human being? The answer is we all do. And I'm very, very tolerant when the mistake was mine. When I said the stupid line, when I said the in... The really nasty line. I didn't mean it, but I said it. I'm very forgiving. I'm very tolerant. And the fourth rule of friendship is friends forgive friends. Invariably, there are going to be things that happen. Invariably, there are things that are going to go wrong. And your ability to say, I forgive my spouse and move on is the fourth rule of friendship. Four rules of friendship. Number one, who's the boss in the marriage? No one is the boss. Your friends. That means you negotiate. That means you debate, you discuss, but you discuss it as friends, best friends who love each other. The second rule of friendship is friends have fun together. You keep things light. You keep things enjoyable. The third rule of friendship is friends support each other. And that means you and your spouse against the world. You and your spouse against your friends. You and your spouse against your parents. You and your spouse, one unit. Your job is to support your spouse. And the fourth rule of friendship is that friends are tolerant and forgiving. Okay. I get the story. Here's the story. It goes something like this. A woman calls me up and says, Rabbi Schaefer, can we speak? Okay, fine. She comes by and she says, I have a major Sholem bias problem. A major marriage problem. There are times when we won't speak for three weeks. I don't know what's with him. All I want is Shalom bias. All I want is a good marriage. And he's just so distant. He's just so... He won't talk to me. Rabbi, you have to help me. Okay. I ask her to describe things a little bit. And she describes, I'm a good balabust. I cook. I clean. I take care of everything. And I don't know what it is. I can't figure it out. I said to her, well, there's got to be some reason. Why do, you, why do you think he's so distant? She said to me, well, I'll tell you what I think. I'm a lot smarter than him. <laughs> you know, I'm a lot smarter. I'm very educated. I'm very learned. And, and he isn't. And, and I think that's the core of the issue. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm a little bit of a you know, perfectionist. I'm a language arts teacher. And I'm, I, I'm a little bit educated. And I think the problem is that he's not. Okay, I wasn't getting too far, so I asked to see him. Now, obviously, I'm expecting a bore of a guy, you know, wearing jeans and, and work boots and walking. But in walks in a finely dressed fellow, and he's very articulate, very well-spoken, and reasonably learned. And, and I asked him to describe their marriage a little bit. And once he began describing their marriage a little bit, I sort of got a little different version of things. So I asked to speak to her again. I asked him to leave the room. I asked her to come in. And I said, tell me something. 
<clears throat> do you ever find that maybe there are times when you're slightly critical of him? Well, maybe. <clears throat> um, do you ever correct him? It could be. Do you ever correct him like at the Shabbos table when he says a Dar Torah? Yeah, it's true. Again, I'm language arts obsessed and I'm very into it. And anyway, <clears throat> it turns out she's the most self-critical human being who ever existed. And she gladly included him in her circle of self once they got married. The guy can't open his mouth without her saying something negative. He said this wrong, he said that wrong, he said... And it's everywhere. It's at the dry cleaners, at the bank, at the... It doesn't matter what happens when she is constantly berating him. And I said to Madam, could it be... Could it be that maybe he finds you a little bit critical? Maybe, but I don't think that's the problem. Okay, and so ladies and gentlemen, let me let you into the tenth of the really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and this is probably the dumbest of them. It's called criticism. Raise your hand, please, if you like being criticized. <laughs> Get the joke? Okay, let me explain to you very clearly. I ain't yet met the human being who likes being criticized, but it's not that. We hate it. We detest it. And if you don't think I'm right, just watch the next time someone laces into you. Let me be very clear so that we understand what I'm talking about. Two-Gun Crowley was a gangster living in the 1930s in New York. And Two-Gun Crowley was known by the police commissioner as the most ruthless killer. He was called Two-Gun, not because, well, anyway, the police commissioner described that he would kill at the drop of a hat. In any case, Two-Gun Crowley fired his last fight in in the west side basically he was holed up on west 90th street a hundred cops surrounded him on all the rooftops and basically 10,000 people were watching while the streets of New York became basically a war zone the entire New York City Police Department came, they were called and they held him at bay for an hour and a half he held the New York Police Department at bay finally he was shot in the chest and they broke into his apartment and this is what they found he realized he was going to die, and he wrote his last will and testament. And these are the words he wrote. Under my coat lies a lonely heart, but a good heart, a heart that would do no man any harm. Now, just a little parenthetical information. An hour and a half earlier, he was in Central Park sitting in his car. A policeman came by and asked him for his license and registration. He reached into his coat, pulled out his gun, shot the cop dead, jumped out of the car, pulled this police officer's revolver from his waist, shot him another time, and drove off. Now, this was the 1930s. There were no radios or no radar. He could have easily driven off, but why take a chance? That's a good heart, a heart that would do no man any harm. Now, amazingly, he survived the shootout. He was unconscious. The police broke in on the top, and they took him to trial. He was operated on. They, eventually, they brought him to trial, and he was sentenced to be electrocuted. On his way to the electric chair, he was overheard saying these words, This is what I get for defending myself. Now, folks, Tugum Crowley was not some insane psychopath. Dale Carnegie, in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, writes about the fact that in an ongoing correspondence with the warden of Sing Sing, and Sing Sing was then the maximum security prison, and the warden says, there's not a single man in my prison guilty. Everyone had a reason, everyone had a story, and why they had to do it, why they had to be quick on the finger. And my friends, this is a tremendous concept to learn. And that is no human being ever does anything wrong. By the way, the Nazis did not do anything wrong. 
Mein Kampf is an 800-page treatise about why Hitler is doing a favor to the world to cleanse the world of the Jewish parasite. Why do you just say, I hate the Jews? Because no person is evil enough to just murder indiscriminately. And no matter how evil a person is, every person rides on a white steed, every person has a very good reason why they did what they did, and no one does anything wrong. And would you like to know why that is? Because within me is a neshama. And that neshama came from under Hashem's kisa covered from the throne of glory. And that neshama is holy and pure. And that neshama would never allow me to do anything wrong. And to allow for free will, Hashem gave us this capacity called imagination. And this imagination allows us to create entire structures, entire theologies, entire philosophies that justify what I did and make it right. And here's the bottom line. You will never find a human being doing something wrong, evil, and bad. There's always a rationale, always a reason. Now what does it have to do with marriage? Don't tell me that that's your husband. No, that's not what we're saying over here. I'll tell you what that has to do with marriage. And the next time you catch your spouse doing something wrong, and you know it, and they know it, and you point it out, why is it that they're not so receptive? Why don't they just well up with joy and happiness? Thank you for showing me the right way. You know why? Because the most distasteful things that we human beings hear are words of criticism. The Rukh describes it like an attack. It's like you've attacked me. You took it and you just shoved it right in my face. It, it's hurtful, it's painful, and no human being wants to hear that. And my friends, this is something that is so hard to, to experience when you're on the receiving side. And ladies and gentlemen, how many times have you said the words, but I only meant it for his good. Ladies, anyone ever say that? I only meant it for his good. And he knows it. And he knows I'm doing it because I love him. Right? Uh-uh. How come he didn't well up with all kinds of joy and happiness, and etc.? So, ladies and gentlemen, let me share with you the three rules of criticism. Because there are three rules. Are you ready for them? Rule number one, don't do it. Rule number two, don't do it. Rule number three, don't do it. Don't do it because it hurts. Don't do it because it damages. Don't do it because it does no good. And don't do it because it wrecks the relationship. And everyone has this fantasy. I'll just point out to my spouse what he or she is doing wrong, and he'll accept it, and it'll be all wonderful and great. But it's never what happens. And you do it time after time after time, and guess what happens? After a while, it becomes distasteful. After a while, it becomes like a toothache. After a while, it becomes like a root canal. And before you know it, the husband is distant in that case. Or it might be the wife, maybe whatever it is. But this is the great rule. The great rule of criticism is just don't do it because it's extremely distasteful, extremely damaging. No one wants to hear it, and it wrecks the relationship. Now, would you like to know how far this goes? My wife was cooking one Arab Shabbos, and she said to my daughter... Can you taste the soup, please? So my daughter said, why don't you ask Abba? Abba's right there. And my wife said, ask Abba? He'll never tell me if the soup doesn't taste good. And it's true. My kids know this. My wife will never ask me to taste the food. Why? Because invariably, no matter what it tastes like, it tastes delicious. But why? Do you know why? Because I learned long ago that when you tell your wife that the food is a little salty, it's just about as good as saying you're fat and ugly. Now, come on, that's not what I said. I just said the food it was a little salty. That's all I said. Yeah, that may be true. That may be the word you said, but try it at home. Try it at home and tell your wife she burnt the potato cooker. You know, dear, it could be it's a little dry. Why does she get all 
Why did she react that way? Why is she so sensitive? Why don't you just be like me, a tough... Yeah. Just try it when it's on the other side. My friends, criticism is the most damaging, destructive force, and you've got to be vigilant, you've got to be on guard, and any word of it has to be avoided. Let me give you an example. I'll share with you what I mean. A fellow called me up. He was married for about six months, and he said, Rabbi Schaefer, I have the following problem. <clears throat> I'm very happily married. My wife is great, but... She's wearing shirt, skirts that are just too short. I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with the, the length of the skirts. And, and I don't know how to tell her. How could I tell her that I'd like her to wear skirts a little bit longer? Okay. I asked her the following. I asked him the following. Tell me, sir. What school did she go to? And he named a number of very reputable Beshakos. I said, tell me. After 12 years of education of the length of the skirt and the length of the sleeves, do you think she knows what the halacha is? He said, yeah, I do. So why do you think she does that? Why, if she knows what's right, why isn't she doing it? He said, I don't know. I said, I'll make it very clear to you. To a woman, the way she dresses represents herself to the world. She identifies with a certain group. And the biggest compliment to a woman is when she wears an outfit to a wedding and someone she respects says, wow, you look great. By the way, have you ever gone to a wedding? Try this little sociological experiment. Women walk in and say, oh, you look great. Oh, I love the dress. I love it. I have been married 35 years. Not once, not one wedding did a guy come over. Rabbi Schaefer, I love your tie. Wow, great suit. Where did you get it? Whoa, I love your shoes. Wow. Not once. 35 years. Not once. Why is it? My wife cannot go to a wedding without somebody commenting on her. I shake the linen dress and her shoes and this. But why? So, gentlemen, let me let you into the big secret. To women, it's a big deal how they look. <clears throat> women rate themselves by how they look. And more than anything, when someone they respect compliments them, that's a very big deal. If you want to understand it in our language, kind of like gang members, you, know, you wear the colors to identify with, with the gang. So the reason why I said to him <clears throat> why she dresses that way is because right now her social circle are <clears throat> women who wear the skirts a little bit shorter than you like. And you have to understand something. If you tell her now to lengthen the skirt, she's not going to hear a word about the length of the skirt. All she's going to hear is, I don't accept you. You're not good enough. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to cause a major rift in your marriage. My recommendation is you don't say a word. You work on the relationship. In Hashem, hopefully your relationship will become better, she'll become more secure, and she'll be able to identify with people that you would like her to, that she probably wants to as well. But it's only through working on the relationship. And I said, I guarantee that if you say a word about the skirt length, it's going to make it much harder, and she's never going to make it. Do you want me just to say nothing? Exactly. But how is she going to learn? She's not going to. By the way, this is Wednesday night. Last night was Tuesday night. I was in the mountains speaking about marriage, believe it or not. I'm on this book tour, so I'm, I'm doing this kind of regularly. And you won't believe what I discussed. <clears throat> I discussed the idea of not changing your spouse. Anyone ever hear that idea? Anyone hear that? So I, I let them into this great secret. And men, sometimes, sometimes, if I spend a lot of time and really hocking in really good, I can sometimes get men to say, you're right, I'm going to work on not changing my spouse. I have not yet succeeded at all with women. No matter how many times I say it, how many times I go over it and over it, and you know the shoes on the, you know the socks on the floor routine, the jackets on the right, the jackets on the dining table. I did the whole routine. I went through it all, 
And I even did the fact that I can never convince women not to not change their spouse. You know, on these cards, you have these cards, and the back of these cards is a big blank space. You're supposed to write your questions in after. Someone's going to collect them, and I'm going to answer the questions. So, of course, I'm used to the questions, how do I change my spouse? I had... I cannot describe the amount of women who needed to change their... After I told... Again, it doesn't work. Okay, anyway, let me make it very clear. Do you know why you shouldn't change your spouse? Number one, it doesn't work. But number two, you know the message it sends, the meta-message... I don't accept you. I don't approve of you. You're not good enough. Raise your hand if you like to hear that message. It's very, very difficult to hear. You see, it's one thing if you act like a drill sergeant. At least I get it. You're right. I mean, I should have helped that guy who knows. He should have helped with the kids. And he, or he should have done dinner. But nevertheless, when he saw his wife pointing that finger and saying, All right, mister, up off that couch. It's very hurtful. And it's very hard to like that person, let alone love that person. But once you get involved in the realm of criticism, we're dealing with a whole different level of stuff. You see, criticism hits at the essence of me. Criticism says, I'm not good enough. Criticism says, you've got to change. And find me a human being who likes that message. You won't find it, but more than that. And the minute I hear that message, I no longer like you. Because it's not nice, it's nasty. And it's the single most destructive thing that you can do in marriage. You see, remember I discussed the fact that the relationship is the key to marriage. It's the bond of love. It's working on the bond of love. It's staying. But you see, there are three pillars to a successful marriage. There's commitment, there's love, and there's learning to live together. Commitment comes from the fact that I know that Hashem designed this marriage to be. This is the ideal match. Hashem worked it out that I should meet this person and we should actually succeed in creating a relationship. That's what creates the commitment that I know that Hashem doesn't make mistakes. Love is the glue in the marriage. Love is the relationship, the going out, and spending time together, the love notes and the gifts, and all the things that a couple in love should be doing. But many, many couples are very committed to the marriage. They even love each other, but they can't seem to live together. And probably the single biggest issue that couples have in living together is accepting another human being, accepting a way different than mine, accepting an approach different than mine, accepting the fact that my experience is my experience, but my spouse might have a very different experience in life, and more than anything, embracing my spouse as they are. And if you'd like to know the single biggest mistake that really dumb couples make, it's criticism. You see, smart couples work on love. Smart couples still make mistakes. But criticism is so destructive that it's definitely up there as the biggest one. Okay. Now, folks, here we go. What is worth fighting about in marriage? What's worth fighting about? Nothing. Nothing. Why nothing? Because it's very simple. You see, if let's say you and I have a court case. If I win, I win. If I lose, you win. But you see, in a marriage, if you lose, you lose. And if you win, you lose. Because it's your best friend and your lover you just beat up. And guess what? It's not going to end well. So if you'd like to know what's worth fighting about, the answer is nothing. Now that's the advice that I give to everyone. But to men, I give a different piece of advice. 
<clears throat> What's worth fighting about? Nothing. You know why? Because you're going to lose. Guaranteed. You're going to lose. It's like fighting an 8th degree black belt. She's going to bring up everything you did wrong since you were born. Since my separation from your grandparents. Things you didn't even know you did wrong. She's going to remember. Now here's the question. How is it possible that your wife remembers everything you did wrong since you were born and you can't remember a thing that she did wrong? What is it? Now, by the way, they've done studies. Women do not have better memories. They're not better in mathematical skills. They're not better in retention. They don't have better memories. How is it that a woman will remember every detail of every fight since you guys first met? And you could have met when you were 12 years old. And you're now 68. How is it possible? And you can't remember a thing. Anyone know the answer to this great question? <clears throat> okay, so I'll share with you the answer. Imagine Imagine you have a fight. Not us, but imagine a couple has a fight. Imagine such a thing for a minute. Okay. Ask the guy the following question. They had a big fight, a big blow up, and the guy goes to work. Ask the guy the following. That day, how many times during the day did he think about the fight? The answer is zero. He comes back home. What fight? Well, you know how angry I am. No, but what? Remember the fight we had? What fight? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. How many times during that day did she think about the fight? 37. Not 37, not 300. All day, every, all, it's like again and again and again. Ruminating constantly. Every line you said was repeated in her mind again and again and again. It's not that women have better memories. It's that it matters way more. The relationship matters much more. She's far more sensitive, and she's going to play it over again and again and again and again. So, gentlemen, don't fight with your wife because you're going to lose. Don't do it. Okay. But that being said, I'd like to share with you. We have a new new married couple here. Who is it? Chassan Kala, a newly married couple. Okay. So it's not going to happen to you, but to anyone else, I got some bad news for you. I cannot guarantee. Now, the simple reality is, unfortunately, you're going to fight. It's part of marriage. And I'll thank you why. You see, in marriage, you're so close. You're so intertwined. You're so interwoven. And you're so vulnerable. Your needs and what you, your life. And by the way, it's your lover. It's your best friend. And how could she be so cruel? How could she do that? It's invariable that they're going to be hurt feelings. In a great marriage, they're going to be hurt feelings. They're going to be words said. And unfortunately, you're going to fight. And more than that, I'll share with you an interesting fact I don't like to say. A single human being who will hurt you more than any other person on the planet is your spouse. The single human being who will make you angrier than anyone ever made you in your life is your spouse. And it might well be the person you hate more than any person on this earth is your spouse. And that doesn't mean you have a bad marriage. Listen to me very carefully. The quality of your marriage is not based on the fights. The quality of your marriage is based on your ability to repair the damage and to go on. It's invariable, especially if you're passionate, that there are going to be words said, things done, and they're going to be very, very hurt feelings. That's just the nature of the beast. That's just the reality. As long as you're able to repair the damage, as long as you're able to make up and go on, things can be beautiful. And many, many very successful, happy marriages have fights from time to time. The goal is to limit the marriages, the fights as much as you can, but more than anything, to know how to repair the damage. So I'm going to teach you how to repair the damage 
if it ever happens. Ladies and gentlemen, what causes the fight in a marriage? Money, children, pride, education, in-laws. Feelings. Who said that? Feelings. You read the book. <laughs> okay. Any fight in a marriage has nothing to do with the issues. Couples never fight about the children or the in-laws or the money or the religion or anything like that. It's the hurt feelings. How could you do that to me? You're my best friend and my lover. How could you let me down? How could you forget about me? How could you be so callous? It's always the hurt feelings. Now, why is that essential to understand? <clears throat> because the next time you get into that fight and you say, all right, you're all right, fine, have it your way. And she's not happy. But I gave in to you. I gave in. You want, you, you want that. And, and, I, and now you're still not happy? Why are you crying now? And as long as you stay with the issues, you will never cure the fight. It's never the issue. It's always the hurt feelings. And I want to teach you the art of the apology. When you apologize, what are you apologizing for? Is it the coming late? Is it the socks on the floor? Is it the bouncing the check? Is it the nasty line? No. It's never the issue. It's the feelings that were hurt. I feel terrible. I'm your best friend. I'm your lover. And I let you down. I'm supposed to be your support. I'm supposed to be your rock. And I, the one who's supposed to love you, caused you pain. And that causes me more pain than anything else. That's the apology. What are you apologizing for? It's not the issue. It's not the coming late. Not the socks on the floor. Not the bounce of the check. It's the hurt feelings. That's rule number one for the apology. But rule number two is a very, very important rule. Let me show you that. For many years in my study was a small golden frame and in it was a certificate of graduation that no one understood. It stood there for maybe 20 years on my shelf. It was a gold frame and then inside was what I considered my certificate of graduation. What happened was as follows. I was driving and a highway policeman put on the flashing lights, pulled me over, I stopped. He comes over, puts both hands on his hips and says, Son, you know why I pulled you over? I said, Officer, I apologize. I was speeding. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I try not to do that. There's no excuse. His jaw went. What did you say? I said, Officer, I was speeding. There's no excuse. I apologize. What? (laughs) And I said the third time, I apologize. I was wrong. There's no excuse. He went back to his car wrote a citation, handwritten citation for speeding. Please don't do it again. He didn't give me a ticket. I took that citation and I put it in a gold frame, put it in my study on the wall. Why? Because it was a certificate of graduation from the school of Musser. Why Musser? Because to be able to say the words, I was wrong and there is no excuse, took me 20 years of learning Musser to be able to say. My friends, would you like to know what the second rule of the apology is? Don't ruin a good apology with a but. I feel bad, but. I feel terrible, but. You see, the I feel bad says what I did was wrong. But says I was right. Under the circumstances, under the situation, <clears throat> considering this, I was right. You ruin the apology with a but. Here, let me make it very clear. Watch this. Moshe and, uh, and Shira. Okay, <clears throat> Moshe works in Manhattan. And they make up a Tuesday night is a date night, 
And things have been a little rocky lately, and they make up 7 o'clock, they're going to meet in Manhattan, and they're going to go out and have a good time together. Okay, so Shira realizes it's a really big deal, so she lives in Queens, she gets on the train, she makes sure that she's early, 20 minutes to 7, she comes out of the train and is waiting on the corner. And it's the middle of February, and there's a little, 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 little bit of a cold. But it's okay, nobody's going to come, it's 7 o'clock sharp, and it's only 20 minutes, and it's okay. Anyway, David wants to be there at 7 o'clock, but his boss at 5.30 tells him, you know, the big report, i got to have it on my desk before he leaves tonight. And he's panicking, and he's rushing, and he's rushing, and he does his best, but he doesn't leave the office until 7 o'clock, until he gets to his car, whatever. He doesn't show up until 7.20. Now that's 40 minutes that she's been shivering, and for 40 minutes what's been playing in her mind is, how could he do this to me? How could he leave me in the cold? How could he leave me? And she's shivering, and he pulls up the car, and she's clearly cold and clearly upset. And as she gets in the car, the ice comes in with her, <clears throat> at which point he looks at it and says, what's the matter? Well, what's the matter? I've been waiting for 40 minutes in the cold. That's what's been. I feel terrible, dear. You're done right. You feel terrible. I'm freezing. I, dear, you have to understand. Listen, I feel bad, but my boss made Your boss, your boss. That's all you care about. Work. That's all you care about. Anyway, the evening goes from bad to worse. But I want you to understand why. You see, the minute he said, I feel terrible, he did exactly what he should do. I let you down. I disappointed you. I feel terrible because I hurt you. That's the apology. And then he said, the but. But, under the circumstances, my boss needed the report. And I had to do this. You have to understand. You have to remember. What the but says is, what I did was justified and okay. Ladies and gentlemen, let me explain to you the basics of life. You're dealing with another human being. Another human being who has a heart that's sensitive and very, very delicate, much like your own. And if we could only remember this great Yesod. You see, I'm extremely vigilant. I'm extremely aware of my own sensitivities. But when it comes to the other side, ooh, I'm a little bit less careful. And if you only remember your own sensitivities and remember that under the heart of your spouse is a very delicate, fragile heart, you'll do a lot better. The rules of apology is number one, what are you apologizing for? You're apologizing not for the issue, not for coming late, not for the socks on the floor, not for the bouncing the check, for the hurt feelings. Number two, don't ruin a good apology with a but. What a but does is destroy it. What a but does is undoes everything that you did with what you did with the apology. And this really is the Yesod for life. You see, this Chazal defines the marriage. Rei and Mahuvim, best friends who love each other. Best friends are supportive. Best friends look out for each other. The first rule of friendship is that no one is the boss in the marriage. If you can remember to negotiate life as friends, if you can remember to negotiate friends throughout everything in life, life is much simpler. But you have to remember the rules of friendship. The first rule of friendship is no one's the boss. The second rule of friendship is that friends have fun together. The third rule of friendship is very important. What's the third rule of friendship? No criticism. No criticism. That's way bigger than that. That's not friendship. Friends support each other. Friends support each other. Even if my spouse is wrong, and even if I know my spouse is wrong, if someone attacks my spouse, if someone says my spouse is wrong, my job is to defend my spouse in front of that person and at home as well. When you remember that you're best friends, when you do that together, when you remember to avoid criticism, you're able to have a beautiful marriage together. 
Um, many times, it's just it's very sad because many times people have such commitment and they really work on the marriage, but they do things in the marriage that destroys them and it makes it very difficult. Let me close with one last observation and then we're going to take questions. Yes. Questions. Much of the audience is not married yet. Yes. Um, where a lot of us, are, a lot of them are single. So, if you could just address a little about dating, it would be very helpful, please. Like red flags in dating. We're going to read the Finding and Keeping a Soulmate book. That's another Shmuel's book. Oh, yeah, we're going to read that. We're not going to address that now. We're going to. We'll take. I'll gladly take questions. And if singles have questions, I'll gladly take it because um, because. Um, even two minutes because it was advertised as dating and marriage. Was it? Yeah. Okay. That's our audience. Okay, audience, what are you looking for? When you're going out, what are you looking for? My shirt. What are you looking for? Anybody? Someone tall, fat, short, skinny, rich, dumb, smart, brilliant, extroverted, introverted, bold, timid? Okay. If you're going out and you want to know what you're looking for, it's two things. You take the paper test and you take the Bashar test. The paper test is you see on paper, are you guys looking for the same sort of things in life? Are you looking to bring up a home in the same way? Bring up children the same? In broad brushstrokes, are you guys aligned in basic outlook in life? That's the paper test. And then you take the Bashar test. What's the Bashar test? The Bashar test is you see if there's a commonality, if it just seems to work. There's just a very clear, I enjoy the dates, it's fun to be with him, I look forward to it. You see, the biggest mistakes that singles make is, I have to be in love. I have to be in love. I cannot get married if I'm not in love. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the time for it, but anyone know the difference between infatuation and love? Infatuation and love. The difference between infatuation and love. This was part one of the marriage seminar. This is part three. Right finger, I gotta apologize. This is part three. We did this in part one already. What's the difference between infatuation and love? Did you did you come to part one? <clears throat> infatuation is instant. Infatuation, he looked in her eyes, she looked in his eyes, the violin started playing and whoosh, she was gone. Infatuation has this chemical effect. It's almost it's by the way, the dopamine, serotonin, adrenaline, it affects the brain chemistry. They scientists now study the brain chemistry and they say infatuation is comparable to cocaine use. You see, the couple are high, he's perfect, she's perfect, and life will be ever lovely and wonderful together. By the way, ladies, I'll share with you a little episode. <clears throat> I am married now, Baruch Shem, 35 years, very happily. I love my wife. My wife's not here to argue, so let's assume she agrees. She does. She does agree. <laughs> when we were first engaged, I vividly remember the conversation. She's on the phone with a friend, and it sounds something like this. Listen, I know no one's perfect, but I'm telling you, he's perfect. He's perfect. Now, I overheard this, and I didn't want to be the one to tell her, but I knew she was in for a rude awakening, because the perfect human being ain't been created yet. So, um, why did she think I was perfect? Because infatuation has this incredible capacity to blind you. There's a sense of euphoria, a sense of sort of mystical magic, the violins are playing, the birds are in the air, and you are gone. But you see, your normal intellect is no longer functioning. Here we go. What is the... It's the first. Actually, it's the first really dumb mistake that very smart couples make. You ready for this one? It's six months after the wedding. Either he or she sometimes both wake up and say these words. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. And it's true that they're making a mistake. But not that they married the wrong one. The infatuation wore off. Infatuation has a shelf life. 
And fluctuation is sort of like the sulfur on a kitchen match. You strike it and it flares up, but then the wood has to catch. If the couple then works on the bond of love, the actual connection, then they could have a beautiful marriage. But infatuation has a shelf life. It lasts six months, maybe a year, and then it's gone and never to be heard from again. And one of the biggest mistakes that singles make is, if I'm not infatuated, I can't get engaged because that means I'm going to be in a loveless marriage. Love in the marriage is not infatuation grown up. It's not like the infatuation becomes concretized and becomes solidified. It's a totally different experience. Infatuation is instant. Infatuation doesn't take work. Infatuation blinds you. Love is very different. Love takes an awful lot of giving, an awful lot of work. Love allows you to see your spouse for how they are, accept them despite their flaws, and still love them and want them. Infatuation doesn't work that way. And the first of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is they mistake infatuation for love. They wake up six months after the wedding and say the words, I made the biggest mistake of my life. And it's true they're making a mistake. That mistake is mistaking infatuation for love. Infatuation doesn't take work. Love sure does. You want to see real love? Watch an 85-year-old couple. Watch a couple when they're married for 60 years. The devotion, the dedication, the bond, the connection. The passion is long gone. She no longer looks at 85 as she did at 25. And believe me, the fires of passion are no longer burning. But there's a real deep connection. In the book, by the way, I spend a lot of time discussing the tools of bond. Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And Hashem gave us many, many tools. There's attraction, there's appreciation, there's friendship, there's physical intimacy, there's touch. There are many, many tools. You have to use all of them. But all of them are to reach the goal of real love. Real love is a connection, a bond, a true concern. I'm responsible, I care, and I want the betterment of my spouse. That's very different than infatuation. So, gentlemen, if you're going out, ladies, if you're going out, the very biggest mistake you can make is waiting to be infatuated. Don't wait for it. The only couples... By the way, I get calls all the time. Should I get engaged? Not get engaged? Do it. The only couples that get me nervous are the ones who are infatuated. Why? Because I know they're blind. And I know they're going to wake up in six months. Here, by the way, one second. One second. Ask a couple who are married two years the following question. Is the person that you're married to the same person that you dated? I've asked this question to hundreds of couples. And the answer is absolutely not. No connection. By the way, my my wife. I love my wife. I'm very, very dedicated. We have a great marriage. I'm telling you, after two years, I said she's not the woman I dated. But how could it be? Because when you're dating, you're, all, you're not trying to put on a show, but he's so nice, she's so nice, and you're each acting very different than who you really are. And once you get married and your hair comes down and suddenly it's real life, ooh, it's a whole different ball game. So <clears throat> the first mistake is to think you need to be infatuated. And um, by the way, um, another thing interesting, also dating couples, here you go. Ask a couple who married two years. Everyone has a laundry list of what they want, what they need, and the absolute deal breakers. I will not, I cannot accept this. Ask a couple after two years of marriage, all of those things, do they matter now? Those things, not at all. There are seven other things that are so much more important and I never thought about. So let me share with you, if you'd like to be successful in this dating process, it's two rules. You take the paper test and the Bashar test. The paper test is, you see on paper, are you aligned? You're also looking for any skeletons in the closet, maybe any mental illness that's un, that won't be spoken out, anything that you're not going to see on the date. 
You take the paper test and then you take the Bashar test. The Bashar test is very intuitive and very instinctual. I enjoy our company. I look forward to the dates. I want to be... It just, it just seems to be right. But I'm not madly, passionately in love. Good morning. You're not supposed to be. But everyone else is so infatuated. I don't know if they are, or, but I can tell you this. I've dealt with many, many couples who were wildly infatuated when they were engaged. And they're in pretty rocky marriages. And I've dealt with many couples who had very little infatuation and have beautiful marriages now. So don't look at infatuation as it's going to grow up into real marriage. If we're so infatuated now, can you imagine how in love we're going to be? <clears throat> Forget about infatuation. Look for the right one. How do you determine the right one? You take the paper test, you take the Bashar test, and then you take that leap forward. Or I figured that I do... Did I, yeah, yeah, I got it. Um, okay. Before I finish, before I finish and I take questions, I want to read something to you. This is a letter that Rabbi Keiger, Rabbi Keiger wrote. Rabbi Keiger was one of the great Achronim, living in the 1700s. He was one of the greatest scholars in Europe. And he was known as a man who never wasted a minute, a man who was totally devoted to the Jewish nation. He was a, one of the great leaders of the Jewish nation. But he was a man of incredible intelligence and incredible Yerushalayim, incredible devotion to Hashem. In any case, his wife died. And someone read him a shidduch. Someone wanted him to <clears throat> go out with another woman. And it was enough time for him potentially to consider a, a, a match. And he wrote this letter. How can I answer you? All of my senses are confused. I can't concentrate on anything. How can I forget the love of my wife, the wife of my youth, youth <clears throat> my pure dove who Hashem blessed me with? We produced wonderful children together. She raised them to Torah, Yerushimayim. She supported my every effort. She cared for my health and wellness. With whom shall I share my worries and receive comfort? Who will look after and care for me? But then he says these words. As you can tell, I'm a broken man in a dark world. I've lost all pleasure. I accept Hashem's decree, but I cannot answer any questions now. The tears make me unable to read. I did everything in my power to care for my wife and keep her alive. Now I am too weak and in grave danger. I am unable to eat. I can barely keep anything down. I can't sleep. I can't daven without distraction. I can barely learn. This was one of the most mature, developed people in his generation. One of the greatest scholars. And you think of a scholar as a a great tzaddik. But when you read about the passion, the connection, the bond, that is a Jewish marriage. It requires an awful lot of work. But you know why it requires work? Because I have to break out of the shell of me. We're born 100% selfish. A baby is absolutely self-centered. The baby's hungry, the baby cries. The baby's wet, the baby cries. All the baby knows is its own interests, its own needs. We're put into this world to grow and to change. And the goal is to become other-centered. The greatest school of growth is marriage. Because it's the first time in your life you have to really put your own needs aside and say, I want to do this, but my spouse doesn't. I know this is the best way, but my spouse doesn't want to do it this way. And the ability to put someone else's needs first, and the ability to look at the world through their eyes, the ability to experience things as they do and not be dismissive requires an awful lot of growth. And when you read about a man like this who had such an attachment, such a bond, and you understand that's what a Jewish marriage is, it takes a lot of work, but ultimately that's what Hashem wants and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, on the back of these cards is a blank spot. The blank spot is for you to write questions. Um, you should also have pens. 
If you'd like to, please write any questions you have, and someone's going to come around and collect them and bring them forward. Um, but you do have five by seven, so you can write it in clear enough letters so I can actually read it. If you write a question, please write it legibly so I can read it. And I can say this, I will take any question except how can I change my spouse? Mm, not taking that. But please feel free to, you can ask questions on this lecture, the previous two lectures, if you remember them, or anything else that you would like to, and you can pass them forward if you like. And if you have no questions, it's even better. <laughs> okay, while we're waiting, let me, a quick plug. The 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that Very Small Couples Make is available for sale in the back. If you're watching on tour anytime, you can go to the schmooze.com and get it. Um, I also want to announce... Okay, I have to make this announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to hear this. you got to hear this. This is my source of pride right now. I am so proud of this. You see this object over here? It looks just like the 10 Really Dumb Mistakes that Very Small Couples Make, right? Except I made a discovery. This is a book. And anyone 30 or younger is illiterate. <laughs> illiterate. They cannot read. They physically cannot read. I cannot tell you how many times guys have said to me, the book is great. What page are you up to? Page 10. There's a table of contents. There are scummers. It starts on page 12. How long have you had the book? Three months. Okay. So I got it. I got it. You either have ADHD or you're literally illiterate. So therefore I said I give up. But I'm not giving up the fight, so I decided video is the answer. So I made animated videos, three-minute videos, three, four-minute videos, and they're animated, very clever. I made 51 of them, and I put them into a video book. What's a video book? A video book is, um, it's, um, it's a video book. Sounds just like me, right? close it, he's quiet. Wow, my wife wishes she could... No, no. That was a joke. That was a joke. But anyway, they are available for sale. You can get them either on the schmooze.com um, or you can get them in the back of the room if you're here. Um, if you go to schmooze.com, it's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. Uh, the back of the room is spelled B-A-C-K-R-R-R-O-O-M. Back of the room, right? Anyway, the $39.95 um, or, right... And, um, and again, it's, it's three and a half hours of content. It's 51 um, short videos. And I, I took the essence of the book and I made it into animated videos because, again, um, if you're illiterate, um, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Okay, um, let's take some questions. What should you do with people-friendly family who you think are bad influence on your spouse? How should you go about it? Okay, loaded question number one. Let's skip that one. No, I'm okay, when you feel criticized, how do you let it go? By the way, does anyone know how to deal with criticism? I do, 
Don't, and that's, that's for you, not to do it. But what happens when your spouse criticizes you? Does anyone know the one single, most effective, guaranteed, proper way to deal with criticism? You're right. You're right? That'd be wonderful. Punch her in... No, that's not that. No. Yell at her. Don't say anything. Don't what? Don't say anything. Don't say anything? I don't think so. You see, if my spouse criticizes me and it hurts... The single most effective way to deal with that is say these, this word. Ouch. Ouch. You see, watch. I'm not going on the offensive. I'm, you see, watch. Let's assume my spouse loves me and we have a good marriage. But she said something, whatever, it, it hurt me. Now, obviously, she didn't understand that it was mean or callous. She never would have done it. So why should she do it? Because she didn't realize. So invariably, what happens is she says something hurtful to me and I give it right back to her. Now, she didn't mean it, and for no reason whatsoever, I'm attacking her. So she hears herself, she said something innocent, and for no reason whatsoever, I'm attacking her. And, and, and what is she going to do? She's going to fight back and attack me back. Now, I get a double. First of all, she started, and then she attacked. Okay, what you do is you say the words, ouch. You know what ouch does? Ouch lets your spouse know that you're legitimately hurt. Ouch. Ouch is a very natural, very proper way of saying that hurt. Now, if you have a good marriage, your spouse is going to say, hmm, that's strange. Why, why ouch? All I said, oh, 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 I guess it wasn't so nice what I said. And hopefully it stops the fight in the tracks. But again, invariably, if you're going to go on the offense, or, or even the best thing to do is say the word. You see, listen, folks, let, let's be honest. If you were a robot, you could just take it all and just not respond, but you're not a robot. And there's no way you're going to respond properly to your spouse if your spouse is criticizing you. And the only way you can do it is to let them know. But let them know in the least offensive way possible, and you say the words, ouch. When you say the word, ouch, you're letting your spouse know that they hurt you without being offensive, without going on the offense, without, um, without hurting them. Okay, if we can't change others, yet spouse continues... Correct your grammar correction. How do you handle it? I'm not going to correct the grammar on this question, right? That would be really, really dumb, right? But this was not grammatically correct. Now let me correct. No. Okay. Um, your spouse criticizes correction grammar. How do you handle it? So again, how do you handle it? The best way is simply ouch. And ladies, the single most important... One second, ladies. Here we go. Watch this. I love cigars. I love cigars. I used to smoke like a demon. We made the trip from Rochester for six hours. I would start with a big, fat Churchill cigar. My kids would always wonder, ah, but what happened to your big cigar after six I, Anyway, I haven't touched a cigar in 23 years. 23 years. Do you know why? Before you clap, I want to tell you why. My wife did that nasty, underhanded, mean thing. She said to me, please stop. Do it for me, please. Ooh. And she said, one, it's bad for your health. Stop it now. The kids are going to learn from you. I'd be smoking today. She said that nasty, please do it for me. Please. Oh. <laughs> I can do Who taught you that trick? Just, I know, guys, I'm in big trouble now. I just let your wife know the great secret. Guys hate when their wives cry. They can't stand it. It's the most painful thing. In the... By the way, most guys want one thing. They want their wives to be happy. Why can't you ever be happy? And ladies, I'm telling you this. The single most potent 
tool you have in your arsenal is something called tears. If you just cry, without defending, just cry. I don't know a guy alive who says something nasty, his wife starts crying, and he says, well, you deserved it. You deserve more than that. You deserve 10 times. Every guy, I don't know a guy alive who could watch his wife tear up and, and oh, I'm sorry. But what happens is most ladies, instead of being, you know, crying, they get all, and all of a sudden, again, remember, every fight starts one way. The offending party didn't mean it. Unless you married a psychopath, unless you married, you know, Ivan the Ripper, and the guy did not mean it to be offensive. He didn't mean it to hurt you. Now, the problem is he didn't realize it. So if he said X, let's say the guy said X, just one second, he said X. Now, he didn't mean it to hurt you, because he didn't mean it to hurt you when you react with... He's now on the receiving side of something that has... Uh, all I said was innocently X, Y, and Z. And now you start attacking me. He's now the victim. And of course the victim responds. And the cycle starts and you're over. Ladies, the best tool in your arsenal is those things called tears. The words please. But, okay, anyway. Um, let's go on with the question. What if you can't cry? Like, what if you can't cry? Yeah, you you're not married. <laughs> <laughs> Mitzvah Shem by year right I'm sorry to be honest I'm sorry to be candid okay um, okay alright um, when you get into a fight with your significant other it's not your significant other it's the love of your life it's your spouse it's the person you're devoted to significant other yeah, are you significant <laughs> I'm married 35 years. Are you significant? No, I'm not significant. I am significant. Yeah, no, it's your wife, your lover. Your... Okay, anyway. Um, when you get into a fight with your significant other, is it bad to be upset until you resolve the issue? Or should I be like him and forget about it the next day? Okay, so if you're asking me, should you be a human being or a robot? I don't know. I assume that you're a human being and you have emotions and you have feelings. And your feelings aren't going to go away. So you have to be very real and you have to be very attuned to your emotions and the odds of you forgetting it and just going on are very slim. And by the way, if you try to do it, likely what's going to happen is it's just going to fester and bother you and it's not going to help. So you have to do something that we human beings rarely do and that's called communicate. <laughs> communicate. Now everybody says, I always communicate, right? By the way, Rabbi Feldman has a good line in his book. A guy was having a really, really rocky marriage. And, um, and Rabbi Feldman was speaking to him and says to him, tell me, how's your communication? So he says, my communication is perfect. Every time she comes home, I don't waste any time with small talk. I get right down to business. I tell her everything she did wrong. Our communication is excellent. Okay, so let me explain to you what communication is. Communication is not the expressing of ideas. Communication is expressing your perspective in a way that your spouse will be able to understand it, relate to it, and hear it. Communication is not just saying the words. Communication is letting your spouse into your world, letting your spouse experience things the way you do. And the art of communication is very, very difficult. And the acronym is NICE. You look in the book. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But what page anyone know what NICE stands for? NICE. Never in the heat of the moment, I statements only, compliments first, and all communication starts softly. 
Look in the book. Nice. Be nice. Anyway, so in answer to this question, um, if you think that you're going to just forget about it, it's not going to happen. So you have to communicate. But communicate means not in the heat of the moment. I statements, meaning it's not you. I'm not blaming you. I feel bad. It compliments first. You have to read the book. You have to, I'm not giving you all the way. Come on. Um, okay. What should you do if you're not organized and your husband is and is always complaining that the house is messy? He expects a constant level of organization. <coughs> uh, I don't know what you're going to do. You have, you have a problem. Um, okay. You have a problem. You have a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, anybody here married? Good. Please raise your hand if you are if you are identical to your spouse. Oh, please raise your hand if you're utterly, totally, completely, totally different in every way imaginable. Now again, Baruch Hashem, I have a great marriage. I love my spouse, but it came very clear after a very short amount of time that we are radically, fundamentally different. Different temperaments, different inclinations, different interests. By the way, it was shortly after we were married, and I said to my wife, let's go on a date. I took my wife fishing. <laughs> fishing. <laughs> Get the joke? <laughs> after about 20 minutes, she did take a long magazine, by the way, just uh, 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, she said to me, are we done? Uh, guess what? We never did again. We never went fishing again. But I love fishing. Yeah, but my wife doesn't. Okay. So anyway, let me let you in a secret. Any difference that you have in your spouse, temperament, nature, inclination, tidiness, or risk-averse risk-takers, whatever the differences are, I guarantee all of them pale in comparison to one difference. The single greatest difference between husbands and wife is one is male and the other is female. And male and females are opposite, completely, utterly, radically different in every way. Temperament, nature, inclination, interest, they're so different that you might as well say they're from different planets. But guess what? Hashem wants marriages to succeed. And provided you work on the tools that bond, you create the bond, you create the connection, you find a way to negotiate things. My way, your way, it really doesn't matter. We find a way. As long as you're best friends that love each other, as long as you work on the marriage, as long as you're connected, you find a way to negotiate life. And any couple that says, but we're so different, I say to them one thing, all of your differences are nothing compared to that single difference that he's a male and you're a female, and yet somehow marriages succeed if you actually work on it, and if you actually work on the relationship and learn to, um, learn to embrace the other person. Um, please talk about being husband and wife on the same page in front of children. If the mother asks something from child, the husband shouldn't say the opposite in front of the child. It makes more conflict and confuses the child and not listening to parents. Right. By the way, I cannot agree more. You guys should be a unified front. And by the way, I guarantee anything that you do wrong in parenting a child the division between husband and wife will do much more damage. What I mean by that is as follows. <clears throat> Let's assume the husband is very um, strict and the wife is very lenient. Who should they listen to? <clears throat> Doesn't care. I don't care. One thing I do care. If you guys are together, a unified front, your children are being brought up in a happy home, a secure home, and <clears throat> everything is good. The minute mommy and daddy are fighting about any issue the very nature of their world is becoming undone. 
And any damage that you think being too lenient or too strict or too whatever, too organized, is nothing compared to the damage that you're going to do in bringing up your children in a rocky home. Um, I made, did I mention this before? I was here at Shear One. Anyone else Shear One? My wife and I, we had a, one of our kids, when our, one of our, when our oldest daughter was in grade school, there was a certain issue with the school, and they asked us to see Dr. Rita Underberg. Dr. Rita Underberg had been the head of the University of Rochester's uh, psychology department. She had recently retired, and she was teaching parents how to deal with children. Anyway, we went to this woman, and I was astonished by her wisdom. She was a student of Chaim Ganat, and she was just brilliant. I took copious notes. It only took us two sessions to learn to deal with our daughter, but my wife and I went for years, literally for years, every week we went and went. I begged this woman to write a book, and in the end I said to her, I'll write it with you. Unfortunately, she died before she wrote it, but I made a huge, huge discovery. I was an intelligent fellow. I was a Rebbe in high school, and I had six kids, and I realized that I knew very little about disciplining children. I knew very little about parenting children. Do you know how most parents discipline their children? Most parents discipline their children based on their temperament. That means if you by nature are very rigid, that's how you're going to bring up your kids. If you by nature are more easygoing, that's how you're going to bring up your kids. But I guarantee, and I can't tell how many parents say to me, well, if I'm going to give in to my husband and be very strict, I'm going to damage my kids. If I'm going to give in to my wife and be very lenient, we're going to damage the kids. I guarantee too strict or too lenient won't damage the kids, but fighting in the home will. And you guys have to be a unified front. You have to be one entity together, and that's the only way it's going to work. Is there a red line where there's like a certain point where one is just terribly toxic to the kids where you have to say, you know, of course abuse, you have to make World War III, right? You can't just say, well... He or she beats up the kids. So hey, you know, right. I, I, at that point, at that point, you must get in the third party. Okay. Let's say, so there, there at that point, you must get in a third party. Like yelling, screaming on a regular basis, and the kids are like, if there's real, if there's what we call real damage to the children, you have to get in the third party. That could be a role. It could be a therapist. It could be somebody else. Because the minute it's going to be you against a spouse, that's going to exacerbate the problem far worse, damage the children far worse. And it's going to make life pretty pretty tough. So I recommend uh, being a therapist. Okay, um, I read in your book how women. Oh, you read the book? Good. I read in your book how women are talkers, and I also read sometimes that it's not good to talk to women too much, even your own wife. So how does that work? Don't worry about it. Talk, talk, talk. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> okay. If one never miss, if. I said five by seven, so you already big, so I could read this. Right, if there are never mistakes in marriage, how do we explain intermarriage? Clearly there are mistakes, right? Okay, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, can you marry the wrong one? Yes. 100%. Absolutely. But it's bashared. It's bashared. How could it be? So let me explain to you what bashared means. <clears throat> we know that exactly what a person is supposed to go through in life is set, including how much money they're to make, who they're supposed to marry, which home they're supposed to own. Okay, let's imagine Shem Kippur. <clears throat> I'm sitting in shul and I'm davening, my talus over my head, I'm chuckling, and I hear a heavenly voice. I was sent from heaven. I was sent to tell you this year you'll make $10 million. Whoa, 10 million bucks, wow. I leave shul happy as a lark, quit my day job, don't even look in the papers. I know what's going to be. 
I'm making $10 million. What's going to happen that year? Likely, I'm going to go hungry. Because you see, when Hashem determines how much money I'm going to make, that's assuming a certain proviso that I do my part. My part is to go about this world in the ways of the world. To earn a living, you have to get a job. To get married, you have to find the right one. If a guy's 25, 28, 30, and says, listen, Hashem, you want me to find the right one? Bring her to me. I'm very busy. I have stuff to do. Hashem, bring her to me. Likely that guy is going to remain single forever. But Bashar, 40 days before the child is born, Bashar doesn't mean it's going to happen. Bashar means it's accessible, it's available, it's what should be. But you got to do your part. To stay healthy, you eat right, you exercise, turn a living, you get a job. And when it's time to find the right one, you go out there and you look for that person. But you have to do your part. So if you ask me, can you marry the wrong one 100%? And I've seen it regularly. I know she's the right one, but I need someone smarter or richer or fancier or whatever. And you could blow it. You could pass by your bashar. So if you ask me, can you marry somebody out of the faith? The answer is absolutely. And there are no guarantees. Your job is to do your part. Your part is you take the paper test, you take the bashar test, and then you say to yourself, I've done my part. I rely on Hashem to brought me to the right place. You're going to cry now? Now you're going to cry. Yeah. I will. I will. I will. The, the rabbi test? I took one of those. It's called smicha. I studied for many years. Really. No. The potential person to the rabbis. And if the rabbi is supposed to marry that potential person, it's a good test. But if you're supposed to marry a person, we got to bring it to the you. Yeah, it's a nice idea to bring to the rabbi, but the question... The, see, one second. The rabbi is going to ask him one question. How do you feel? What's going on in you? Is it right for you? The rabbi is not... Okay, can I ask another volunteer? But what about premarital counseling? Would you recommend that? Premarital counseling. First of all, get a book. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper, a lot easier. You buy the book, you read it, you know. Right? That's easy. Okay, <laughs> how do I know what not to do based, based on upon the past? Yes. 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 Okay. What? How do basically, in, in other words, how do you know what not to do based on the past events that can, that can preclude? Okay, so one thing for sure, how did it turn out for you? If it turned out bad, don't do it again. If it turned out good, do it again. So if you bought flowers and gifts and she was all smiling, great, do it again. If you didn't and she got all huffy and puffy, so stop doing it, do it. You know what I'm saying? You got to, what works, you do it again. I don't know. Did I get that one wrong? Okay. Maybe I got it wrong. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Let's, um, let's take one or two more questions and then I'm running out of steam. Okay. <clears throat> um, Baruch Hashem, I would like to get happily married. Wow. <laughs> People are telling me to settle for anyone. <laughs> Everyone is the same. Okay, now, let me explain to you what you should be looking for. It's one thing. And one thing, oh, by the way, I've asked this question to countless number of people. What are you looking for? There was only one person who answered right. My oldest daughter, when she was about to go out, I asked her, what are you looking for? She said, I'm looking for my Bashar. I said, get out! Who told you that? Who said that? Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm looking for my Bashar, the right one. Well, how do you know? How do you know? You take the paper test, you take the Bashar test. But I'm not looking for my model wife. 
I'm not looking for my ideal husband. Most people, when they go out, by the way, I say they, they make their Mr. Potato Head. You know the little children's toy, Mr. Potato Head? You know, you pick the eyes and the feet and the ears. And most people say, well, listen, I'm introverted, so I need an extrovert. I have this kind of sense of you, I need that kind of sense. I need someone this intelligent. They create their Mr. Potato Head, then they go into the marketplace to find the one that's closest to their, their Mr. Potato Head. And I can't find my Bashar. I don't know why. You know why? You're not looking for the one that was predetermined for you. You're looking for your Mr. Potato Head that you made in your mind. Stop looking for him. Look for the one that Hashem designed for you, and you might actually find him. Yes, my finger, did I do something wrong? My finger left, that's it, okay, good. Okay, um, alright, one last question. One last question and we're done. We're done. Um, of apology, you mentioned three parts. Apologize to hurt, don't want to apologize to good butt. And part number three, got to read it in the book. Actually, four parts to the art of apology. Four parts to that, but you got to read it in the book. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Theshoes.com or Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.